Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today I am joined by Dr. Susan Stanfield, who is author of Rewriting Citizenship Women, Race, and 19th Century Print Culture. Professor Stanfield is an assistant professor in the history department at the University of Texas, El Paso. She's a scholar of U.S. 19th century history with an emphasis on race and gender and political culture. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Stanfield. Thank you for having me. Today, we are discussing your wonderful new book, Rewriting Citizenship. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yes, it is. um, What I do is I look at how black and white women imagine themselves Um, having a relationship with the state. And so when we look at citizenship, you know, we typically look at it from a masculine perspective. And that means they have to serve as, you know, serve on juries, pay taxes, they vote, you know, um, serve in militias. You know, and when women in the early 19th century are kind of concerned with, well, how, how do I meet those requirements? How do I, how do I meet the requirement to be a, a citizen, an obligation to the state? And so what the book looks at is, you know, not that women thought they had the right to vote. Um, and so it's like, I can't vote. I'm not a citizen. But instead, they reimagined what, what a citizen could be. And for them, they started imagining it in terms of what was seen as feminine role models of the 19th century. But they but they revised it to, it's not just a female role, but it's the role of a female citizen. And so white women did this on their own behalf. They wanted to become citizens, you know, just like their husbands, their fathers, their brothers. Um, African-American women did it for both their husbands, who had to be, in essence, patriarchs in their family, so they could serve as citizens. Not literally, you know, they had a fairly equal marriage at the time, but you perform that role. And so, they do it to both help themselves, but also to to say we are performing the role of domesticity and living the same life as white women, and we also should be citizens. So I look at this and look at it through print culture in the 19th century and see how do women sort of perpetuate those, those beliefs. How did you become interested in this topic? To be honest, I started out when I was getting my master's degree. We read um, read a chapter of um, Scholar's book on um, Catherine Beecher, and we read about her creating her book, um, Treatise on Domestic Economy, and I was just fascinated by it. Um, She... You know, I didn't know anything about uh, domesticity in the 19th century or cookbooks or, you know, these manuals. 
And what Catherine Beecher did is she writes about womanhood, but in terms of what women do for the state. And so she's looking at, you keep a clean house and that's not just for your husband, but it's kind of for society. You know, you are, you are being good um, housekeepers and wives and mothers. And that's what makes the difference. And I found it so odd. I mean, she quotes a political theorist at the time, um, Alexis de Tocqueville. I mean, she quotes him pretty much throughout the, the introduction. And the introduction is long. It's, you know, 20 pages. Most of the introductions to these books was quite short. So anyway, I became kind of obsessed, uh, started, you know, kind of looking into that. And, um, but then decided to do something else for my master's thesis. And uh, then I decided to go ahead and get a PhD. And I came back to, in my mind to Catherine Beecher and what she had to, to write about domesticity. And I was curious, did other um, people who wrote cookbooks or domestic training manuals, did they write in the same way, saying that women are, you know, in essence, being citizens through housekeeping? Or was she unique? And so that's kind of what I started looking at. And then it just kind of blossomed from there. And it blossomed very well. There's a term that you mention. Um, you talk about the cultural importance of true womanhood, um, especially during this period. Can you say more about that? So true womanhood is, uh, is a 20th century phrase for understanding the 19th century. And uh, Barbara Walter, the author that sort of gives it its name, uh, what she does is she discovers that there, there are four characteristics of womanhood, piety, purity, submissiveness, and domesticity. And um, what I did is I started looking at this idea of true womanhood and seeing how really was the term used in the 19th century and how how common were these characteristics. So I actually, when I started doing my research, kind of started doing a, a graph where I would write the um, comments that you know people made in the introductions to their cookbooks and would uh, you know see what characteristics they call for. And I found that, you know, it's a little broader than what Walter says, um, but it also went a lot further than just these cookbooks and domestic training manuals. And that womanhood, which is the phrase that they used in the 19th century, as opposed to true womanhood, um, was an idea that expanded into all aspects of women's lives throughout the 19th century that I focus on uh, the antebellum era. Now, was this found among white women only, or was this found among both black and white women? It was done by both. And I think of white women is, it was how they experienced, you know, this idea of womanhood and when they read print culture, 
Black women used it more strategically, you know, so they, they recognize it in large part, not, not everyone, but um, recognize that this is a characteristic of white women. Let us live this life too. And more importantly, promote this in through print culture. And we can show that we also are um, domestic and pure and pious and submissive in the same ways that white women are. And so it was probably intended for, for whites, but black women used it very much in, in a strategic way. Right. And you mentioned that domesticity, it becomes central to the argument that these women are making during the 19th century. Yes. So, I mean, the piety and purity um, is sort of more kind of characteristics that are promoted, but how, how you run your household became what you do for, for the nation. And so, you know, and that sounds odd to us today. Uh, but, you know, women were kind of told when you, when you organize your house, and that includes your child rearing, um, you are doing it, you know, for your husband, but you're also doing it for the nation because you are propping up a civilization um, that that the country you know, needs and wants. And so, you know, men may go out and do, you know, work, you know, work for wages or whatever, but women run that domestic sphere. And that is what they're trying to accomplish and preserve for, for the nation. And so, you know, everyone owes an obligation to the state to have that, that, that perfect household. Not all women, um, you know, do most women didn't do the labor themselves. Um, you know, in the, in the North, there was, you know, enough, um, working class women to fulfill it, but, but they were still expected what they do differently in the 19th century is it's important for you to be educated so you could train your household servants. You could, you know, when you're entertaining people, um, perhaps you would bake that cake, you know, while the, while the servants would do the other work. And, and it became very much you as the, the role model of what domesticity is. And so that was kind of how how domestic life took off um, from the other three characteristics and really, you know, was was the focus. And it's also something easier to perform, right? You can perform your your domesticity, but how you live your piety or purity is a little bit harder. And so women kind of clustered around this idea of of, of enacting domesticity. Right. And you make the connection between domesticity and citizenship. Um, and you alluded to a few moments ago that you're not just, let's say you have a nice home and you're raising your children. Well, it's not just to do those things in and of itself for per se your husband, but it goes out also, you're doing it for the nation as well. Right. 
So it, it's really important to, you know, the ideas of Republican motherhood to be able to, you know, be educated enough to raise primarily your sons to be good citizens. You have to have the proper environment for, you know, your children to be raised in so they could, you know, grow up to be good citizens. You want to have the, you know, a proper and comfortable home that your husband can come home to in the evening and, and relax and be comfortable. And all of these ideas, though, are not just, you know, it's not like you're a little tiny city by yourself, right? Your home. It's then all homes start fulfilling these duties. And obviously someone that isn't a good housekeeper or practices domesticity would be the abnormal, you know, but most women, they want to live this, this life. Right. Now, there are some changes that take place, one of which is the emergence of female print culture. How does that change things? So in the, in the early 19th century, um, you know, it, printing, it becomes cheaper to publish things. You know, I mean, there's certainly published books in the 16th and 1700s, but it becomes far more common in the 19th century. And with that, then you have more specialized press. And um, there's, you know, an African-American press, which we'll talk about, and I'm sure in a bit, but for women, um, people start seeing them as potential customers, right? And so you start seeing uh, cookbooks getting printed in, in a larger scale. The first American cookbook comes out in 1796, um, but then they, by by the 1820s, are lots of cookbooks are being written. Um, you start seeing women's magazines being produced. And so, you know, they can focus on, you know, parts of life that interest women instead of being sort of more for a general audience. So that's why you start seeing lots of articles on how do you run your house? How do you manage your house? What do you, you know, how should you, you know, cook? How do you clean? How do you dress? You know, all of these things, because you have a female print culture, it, they become more specialized and there are enough women, you know, that buy them, they, they sell their, their commercial, um, you know, Lydia Maria Child, Lydia um, Sigourney, they're both authors that I looked at and, you know, they made good money from the royalties. Um, Lydia Maria Child writes cookbook in 1827 you know, even 10 years later, after the cookbook is written, she's making about um, 8000 a year of uh, profits from the book that she gets from the publisher. And when you look at that in, you know, the equivalent in 21st century money, that's, that's, that's good income. And so uh, print culture becomes then also profitable for women. So you have cookbooks, you have domestic manuals, you have these magazines. Women also start writing, you know, books about, um, you know, that are focused for women. 
um, as opposed to more general fiction that's written in the, the 18th century. So it really takes off at this time. And, you know, women find a lot of ways that they can, you know, be educated and, and read for fun and pleasure, you know, in the 19th century. Right. And that emergence of the print culture, in many respects, it's also breaking up that whole public-private divide that's going on. Because in some ways, even though they may not physically be out in the public sphere, um, as we like to say, their ideas are circulating in the public sphere now during yeah, this time. Yeah, I... I... I kind of refer to, you know, Benedict Anderson's um, book, you know, when I write about it, but, you know, he talks about how in the, in the 1700s, you know, people, people's ideas spread through, uh, and he's, he's talking about politics through newspapers. But what I found is that it's happening for all sorts of ideas. And in the 19th century, it's, you know, women's ideas about, you know, housekeeping and things like that. But also, you know, there's quite a bit written about women owning property in the 1840s and 30s, you know, and a lot of different ideas that pertain to women would would be written in these journals. So a woman in Ohio could experience the same thing, you know, the same reading that a woman in Massachusetts does. And so it allows these attitudes and these beliefs to, to truly take off and spread in a way that they never could in the, in the previous centuries. Right. And these ideas are also with the emergence of print culture, you're also going to begin to challenge these ideas that about citizenship as well during this period. That's my point. I think um, I think women start then, you know, it's not just I'm sitting at home, you know, raising my kids, you know, supervising the household. I start thinking about with print culture, how does this work? How does it, you know, and some women, some women want to want to see print culture as just simply promoting themselves, right? It's like, I keep a good house. I, you know, I, I raise good children. Some of them see it as a way of, oh, I could be a better housekeeper, you know, or mother or, or whatever. You know, some women see it as an argument for, oh, when I, when I keep my house, I am a better citizen. So it, it really does fulfill a lot of different, you know, goals of, letting women rethink about what they're already doing in their everyday life, but give it a, an enhanced importance. Right. And there's so many changes that are happening during this time, especially for women in the wake of the American revolution. Um, You've got the emergence of print culture. You have the transportation revolution is also happening. Um, You've got the market revolution. So there are many things that are happening simultaneously. And women now, they have the emergence of print culture, which allows them to have more of a voice to put into the public sphere, to share their ideas with others. 
I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, the beginning of the 19th century, you know, we look back at it now and don't really, really appreciate how much change was going on. And so you have industrialization, you have the switch to the market economy. And, you know, that's going to change the roles of women at the time as well. And so print culture allows them to sort of both adapt to these changes, but to create meaning for these changes. And so it becomes the way that that women are able to promote what they do, how they do it, um, and and what they're trying to to accomplish. And they and they do a great job of taking advantage of print culture. You know, I don't think they literally I mean some women literally are like, okay, I'm gonna write this to persuade women to do that. But for a lot of women it's just it becomes sort of this growing awareness of of their role and and the specialized role that exists for women that really didn't as much in previous centuries, you know? Right. That's true because if you think about, as you're saying, the um, market economy prior for women, especially many of them were actually involved in the production of goods. Um, And now that has moved out of the home at this point in time. So it's a their you know their roles, especially during this period, they're changing a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of transformation that's happening in their daily lives as well. Right. I mean, you know, in the 16 and 1700s, um, you know, women obviously are not equal at this time, but they seem to be more equal in employment in their own ways because people are working from within the home. And so, you know, whether you are making shoes to trade with other people or, you know, farming or, you know, making butter or whatever, you know, women seem to have a more of a concrete role than than in the 19th century where we start seeing the separation. And so obviously working class women still work um, outside the home, but you have, you know, middle class and upper class women that, you know, their roles are changing. So it becomes implicit upon them to redefine what that means. So, you know, they could have just sat back and said, okay, well, now I'm going to be at home. But instead, they they sit and try to think about, well, but what am I doing? What am I, you know, do I still create a a a better society? Am I still, you know, am I raising my child for myself? No, I'm raising a Republican child. So, you know, my, my son is a better part of the government. So they're, they're making more universal what they maybe beforehand thought of just for their family, but instead thinking more broadly, what does this mean for society? Right. And they're making those, you know, it's, what does it mean for society during the time in the wake of all of these changes as we're starting out, you know, as the revolution ends, everything's starting over in many respects. And you have to think about, so what does that mean for women during this time? What is their place? You know, who are they? And what and will that I role mean, be? It is we talked about, you know, this idea, I- Republican motherhood is there. Yeah. 
Well, no. And when you think about it, um, and I know I'm not going to maybe explain this right, but, you know, before the American Revolution, everyone could be, you know, they're, they're not, they're not going to be nobility, right? But they could marry into it or whatever. But when, you know, you, when we become a republic, it becomes more, once again, segregated by sex. So, you know, a woman could become a queen, you know, in America before, I mean, no one does, you know, before the revolution, but after, you know, the leadership roles are all left to men. And so it becomes critical for women to, to reimagine how do you think of what these roles are and what kind of role can I fulfill as a citizen, as opposed to just being the wife in my, my tiny little home, right? It's, I have a broader purpose. Yeah. And trying to figure that out, especially as we say, with all the change that is going on during this time. And right now, we've been primarily talking about the change that's happening with just in the larger society, but in the African-American society, there are also very large changes that are happening as well, especially in the North. Uh, You're beginning to have gradual emancipation that's happening in the North. So how does that begin to change things in many respects? I think for African-Americans, it becomes a struggle once again for, for citizenship. And so um, in the period of, you know, right after the American Revolution, so in the early Republic, um, most laws do not forbid um, African-American men from voting. But there are like restrictions on property ownership and things like that. So most most black men can't vote, but they're not being denied that vote because of race per se at the time. Um, when we get into the 1820s and, you know, this idea of democracy is now more universal. You know, we still have to remember, though, at this time, individual states start taking away voting rights uh, from from black men. You know, Pennsylvania, you know, for example, goes from explicitly giving African-American men the right to vote in the 18 or 1790s constitution to literally taking it away from them in um, the constitution of, of the late 1830s state constitution. And so with all of these changes, it becomes very important uh, for African-American men to also be part of this. How do we, how do we redefine, how do we claim these, these rights? You know, whites might have been claiming natural rights in the, you know, during the American revolution, but, but they're not willing to give those rights to everyone, regardless of race in the 19th century. So African-Americans begin struggling with how do we, how do we, how do we claim these new, new rights? How do we convince our, our white audience that we deserve them? Why do we, you know, who do we need to persuade? And so that is something else that's going on that um, is a huge change at the time. 
you also, as you, as you mentioned, we have gradual emancipation and, um, basically, you know, when slavery is illegal in New York state in the 1820s, but it's been gradual, you know, there are not many slaves that, that still exist in, in the 1820s, you know, but it's this changing society that, um, African-Americans are want and expect to be part of the nation just as their white counterparts. And it's so strange, you know, we think about, we think about the 19th century and this expansion of democracy. That's what you hear so much about, but yet it's also constricting at the same time. And in the midst of all of this, women, both black and white, they're trying to navigate that terrain to find their own space within there. Yes. And so, and that's really, really what the, what the book is about. And, um, you know, not only is it sort of generically finding, you know, finding roles for, you know, black and white women and African-American men, um, but also kind of specific roles. So at this time, abolition becomes, you know, in the 1830s, you know, becomes more of an issue. And, you know, black and white women want to speak out as well as white men, right? And so it's how do they, how do they justify that activism, um, but the one thing I'm, I'm wanting to stress in the book is when we think about women's rights, we tend to think that means suffrage. And we know, you know, Seneca Falls takes place in 1848. And the very last thing on the Declaration of Sentiments is, you know, the demand for the right to vote. But that's just such a small number of women that support that. But what my research uncovered is that most women still see themselves as citizens. It's just they don't define the vote in the same way that, you know, women's suffrage leaders do. And so all of the women, you know, weren't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucy Stone were the only activist women, right? It Instead, it's like most women believed that they were citizens, they just didn't think the vote was necessary. So they wanted to fulfill that through their housekeeping, through their, you know, how they live their lives, and even being citizens through being activists for abolition or temperance or, you know, whatever the the organization that you're joined. And that was a that was a big deal for both black and white women. Right. And it's great. And that's a central point that it's not, you know, we do get so caught up, especially in the 19th century, thinking about voting rights, especially for women. But for some, it was, that wasn't the central purpose, or there was another purpose that was added to that as well. There are many different ideas that were circulating during this time. Right. I mean, you know, women either thought, I, you know, my, you know, husband votes for me or, you know, he represents the household or some women just thought my vote is sort of indifferent. You know, I don't need to vote because 
I, you know, I believe as, you know, my spouse does. And, you know, and so for all of them, it wasn't that critical. They were more concerned with other rights. And, and, you know, we once again think about, oh, it's only Stanton and Anthony that are promoting women going to school and being able to have jobs, you know, but but women, women advocated to own property from, you know, the early 19th century. Women started building schools for them in, you know, 1819, 1820. Um, so, so women's rights was a lot more than just, just the right to vote. Right. Exactly. And one woman in particular that you're very familiar with. She was definitely speaking about politics in her writing, and that was Catherine Beecher, her treatise on domestic economy and what women's roles were in society. And you talked a little bit about that in the beginning, but take us through that. What was she, I know she was quoting Tocqueville during this time, which you think about it, it's like, that is pretty amazing. Yes. And it's like, it's both amazing. And then part of me is like, who's going to want to read this? But, uh, but no, she is, you know, domestic training manuals exist before uh, Beecher's comes out in the early 1840s. Um, But she's the one that makes it political. And so, you know, she's not only, you know, she's not just writing, you know, a recipe for how to take, you know, a stain out of, you know, a certain type of material or how to clean your carpet or how to, you know, you know, make a, a medicine to, to end coughing. It's, she, she writes this long introduction. She talks about Tocqueville in so much detail. And it's because she is in essence creating, you know, she's like a lawyer writing a brief. She's making her political argument that women's role is just as important as men. And actually, you know, according to Tocqueville is that, you know, the American, you know, society is superior because their women are superior. And so that's what she focuses on. And then pretty much everyone starts following suit. So, you know, other people that write, you know, no one writes as long of an introduction as Catherine Beecher. She's wordy. But, you know, other people start making these political kinds of claims in the introductions to their manuals. And and people start seeing, you know, it's you're not running your house for yourself. You're you're you have that larger role. And so, you know, print culture and seeing these these journals make a difference in, and really Catherine Beecher is the one that, that does it. Now, interestingly enough, Catherine Beecher never owns a home. You know, she's the oldest spinster sister of, you know, a very large family. So she just travels from home to home and stays with friends, but she does like to, to write about, you know, how they should be running their, their households. The book, uh, A Treatise on Domestic Economy, is originally written 
for young girls, students, but, you know, eventually she discovers that everyone's reading it. And, you know, her book also includes not just how to, you know, how to clean your house, how to, you know, make medicine, but it includes like images for architecture and how the house should be built. And, you know, she, she really does think about what needs to be done, not just for women, but in women's sphere. And so how to make the home a more productive place too. Right. And you mentioned that the audience um, for these domestic advice manuals are young women um, during this period. Now, what about Black society? Are they also at the same time producing similar materials? They're not, at least as far as we know. Um, what they tend to do is, um, so the Black press um, exists, you know, in 1827, 1828, with uh, the production of the first African-American edited journal, our newspaper, uh, Freedom's Journal. Um, and then there are a plethora of them that are published in the um 1830s and 40s. And what they tend to do is republish things from either uh, the white author manuals or just short articles from more predominantly white newspapers, and they put them in their own uh, newspaper. And so African-American women are definitely exposed to these ideas. You know, I don't see why they wouldn't read these books as well. Um, you know, Catherine Beecher, um, you know, they there's certainly no reason why they wouldn't order them, but they, they aren't producing their own domestic manuals. And I think that's largely because the middle class is less defined. So, you know, while the middle class for white women don't tend to work outside the home, um, not not all. There's certainly some elites, which we'll talk about a bit in a, in a little bit. But, you know, most uh, black women work for white women um, and are domestics. And so um, they're going to have less, less of these manuals for themselves. I only know of two that were written before the Civil War, and they were both written by men. Um, and so one is on um, basically how you could be a butler. Um, and then the other one is how to, how to run a hotel. And so they're not really truly domestic. They're, they're a larger sense. Uh, the first African-American authored cookbook um, comes out in 1866. However, I suspect that maybe some of these books were written before and we just haven't found them yet. They're not extant. Of the, the 1866 cookbook really has only been found in the last 30 years. Um, there was, you know, people used to think it was a book that came out in the 1880s was the first African-American uh, female authored cookbook. And and so we've discovered that. So I'm I'm kind of hopeful we'll maybe find manuals or maybe some of these newspapers that, you know, we don't really have copies of anymore. They 
we know they existed, but they, they're not extant. We don't have them, but maybe someone will, will find a copy and there'll be things that were written particularly for an African-American audience. But for now, we're not really finding it. Same thing with manuscript cookbooks, which are the handwritten cookbooks by women. Um, I haven't found a single one authored by a Black woman before the Civil War. I have heard rumors of people like, oh, I've seen one, you know, my aunt has one or, you know, whatever. But I haven't seen one yet. But I, I once again, I suspect that maybe we just don't recognize it's written by a Black woman. Or, you know, we just haven't really discovered it yet. But I, I do think... I think the African-American middle class would write these same, same ideas as, as white women did. And, um, and so it's just a, a question of finding it. And as we said, I don't think, I think discrimination at the time wouldn't allow them to publish a book, you know, that was published by like Harper's or someone big, but I think these smaller presses would, and it's just tracking him mm-hmm. down and finding him. Right. And I want to backtrack a little bit because we talked about the advice uh, manuals that were about. There's also other types of literature being proposed during this time, such as domestic novels. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Yes. So particularly the domestic novels take off in, in the 1830s. Um, I mean, there's some, you know, there's this cookbook that comes out in the 19, like 20s, maybe 1910s, you know, Bettina's, you know, better cooking or something uh, that follows the format. But, but the format takes place um, in the 1830s. And this is where women will write fiction, um, but then also include how, how to do things in their writing. And so there is a book called The Home by, um, um, Catherine Sedgwick, um, who she, you know, it's the book's the story of, you know, a middle-class family falls on hard times. So the oldest daughter becomes a servant and, you know, how she learns to cook and clean and keep house and ultimately, you know, ends up, you know, marrying well because she learns to be a, you know, a domestic you know, figure. And then um, Sedgwick writes a second book a couple of years later, Live and Let Live, that is the same book, but from the perspective of a an actual servant that's, you know, born to be a servant and, you know, how, how that person is trained through life. And so, you know, there'll be a chapter on, she has to make bread. How does she do it? And so it has the recipe and all of that. So they're actually pretty popular. You know, Sedgwick wrote Hope Leslie, which was, you know, a big fiction book, but then she wrote these domestic novels as well. And, you know, they haven't lasted, um, you know, they're not things people study today as we do Hope Leslie, but, um, but yeah, they were equally as popular at the time. And so this became, for Sedgwick, did it become 
a source of income for her. Definitely. And so, you know, I think what they found, um, you know, most, most of the women authors at the time would write, you know, novels, you know, so, um, Lydia Maria Child's first real popular, you know, first book was Hope Oak, you know, in 1824, Sarah Hill writes Northwoods in 1827, um, Catherine Beecher is kind of the one exception, but, you know, women are writing these books at the time, but they don't, they don't really sell as well. And so they also start writing books, cookbooks and domestic manuals and these domestic uh, novels. And so, you know, they may, they may have that goal of writing, you know, a, a good novel, a good fiction book, but, but then they, they make for their income, how they, how they make their, their money will be these, these shorter books and, and articles and cookbooks. Well, women, they've carved out an economic space for themselves as well as doing the political space. So print culture is for women during the 19th century, it, provides them with opportunities that they otherwise would not have had during this period. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, when, when we think about what, what, what jobs women could have at this time, um, to be honest, education was a fairly new position. You know, women might've run during the American revolution in the early years, like a dame school, you know, a little finishing school for girls. But in terms of more massive education in the 19th century, women start getting hired as teachers, you know, in the 1830s, really for the first time. Um, Women then also that want to become professionals and earn actual real money, you know, um, also then start writing. And so there is a huge uh, number of women that are that are publishing. And I mean, some women we still remember, but there were quite a few of very popular authors at the time that haven't really lasted or, you know, stayed with us, but, but it became a, a method for, for making, making your own money, being self-supporting. Sarah Hale starts publishing after her husband dies in 1822 um, and then eventually becomes editor of Godey's Ladies Book. Um, Catherine Beecher is a single woman, writes lots of books. Um, she writes nonfiction, but writes about education. She writes a book on exercise. She writes, um, you know, domestic manuals. Um, but then, um, you know, kind of the one exception is Lydia Maria Child, who is married all the way through. And, um, you know, she's, she's writing to support she and her, her husband, but as a married woman, she, she's publishing, you know, there are lots of married women that publish, um, Lydia Sigourney, uh, writes, but, but Lydia Maria Child is sort of the, the one that we still, still remember that is married when she's when she's publishing. Right. During this period. So there's, you know, publishing has really begun to take off 
during this period right now in the 19th century. Now, that's just, as we talked about, one of the changes, and we spoke a little bit about it earlier, the changes as to what's happening with African-Americans in the North. And we talked about gradual emancipation, what's happening, but they're also trying to create their own institutions after emancipation. They're building their own churches, their own schools, their own, which comes subsequently a little later, their own print culture. So they're they're also trying to carve out their space, the same as with women during this time. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes, I think I think when we, you know, when we look back from a 21st century standpoint, you know, we would support this idea of um, you know, integration that you know, there should be, you know, integrated schools and churches. But I think in the in the early 19th century, up into the Civil War, you know, there is also kind of this idea of how do we create these organizations for ourselves? Because, you know, even if we are allowed to attend, you know, church with, you know, white people, how do we, you know, how are we given equality within the church, you know, they don't have a voice, they aren't, you know, allowed to really speak out. And so you start seeing the evolution of African American churches, you know, the first um, two churches are founded in Philadelphia in the 1790s. Um, But then soon after other churches take off, and you have the, um, you know, they can go either way. You can be either a church that follows um, a, you know, basically a white church. So, you know, you may have a an Episcopal church or a Presbyterian church, but that is a primarily black denomination or our, um, not denomination, um, a an actual smaller church. Or you could be like a, uh, you know, a church that was just established for African-Americans. You know, so, you know, the African Episcopal, you know, Methodist church, um, that is, that is just for, for African-Americans and it is run just by African-Americans like the African Episcopal church. They still have to kind of follow the hierarchy of, um, of that church for themselves, you know, so they, you know, they will have priests and, you know, and there was some question whether they were even, um, they might, they might be part of the, the larger, um, church, but they weren't, you know, some areas like in you know New Jersey, they wouldn't allow them to actually become officially members of the church. So, that became a bit iffy and that's why they started forming their own denominations. Um, you have the need for church or schools to be formed. You know, there were a few examples of interracial schools or integrated schools and they were, you know, met with, um, backlash. And so they, those didn't last, but African-American schools, both public schools existed in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, but also in those areas, private schools were formed. Um, you know, they start out with um, the schools are formed through the churches, um, but also just 
generally, you know, private schools as well as the public schools. One of the things that both schools and churches provide for for Blacks is this idea also of space. And so having a place where lectures can be held on abolition or, you know, where you could have your club meeting meet each week, um, those also took place in churches and in schools in a way that wasn't available, you know, for whites, they didn't have to use those types of spaces. They could either use their own homes or they could, you know, be in more generally public places as opposed to, you know, purely African-American societies that had to build and create their own. Right. And you're so correct when we think about, you know, now, 2023, we think about this whole notion of integration, especially of schools starting, you know, in the 1950s. But if you go back to the 19th century, these were the options that they had. And, you know, for many of this, as you say, it also had a twofold purpose. It wasn't just education. It wasn't just church, but it also served as a space for them to, in some cases, engage in political activism. Mm -hmm. Um, And it provided a space for them to have those more recreational groups that they may not have, may not have otherwise found a space for, such as the Female Literary Society, men's clubs. Yeah. There were more, you know, those institutions, they had more than just a singular purpose during this time. No, and that's so true. And, and, you know, I do want to... explain it wasn't it wasn't all political activism you know they weren't just meeting in the church to you know that's where their abolition society would meet you know that's also where they had various self-help societies so men were taught how to do debate um women were taught like female literary society how to write essays how to read them you know aloud and to present their arguments in public but also some of it was just just for leisure and so you know they may have a singer come in you know they may have you know someone that plays music you know various musical instruments also featured at the church or at the at the school you know in the evening when when that space was free so it wasn't just work. It was more than that during this time. Now, in your book, in the last two chapters, um, you actually discuss the lives of black and white women and their role in society and print culture. In the first of the two chapters, you select three women, Sarah Hale, Catherine Beecher, and Lydia Marie Child. Who were these women? during the 19th century? They're all incredibly well known um, at the time, um, which is something I'm kind of surprised when I, you know, I'm a teacher and when I talk to my students, um, no one's really heard of any of them. Um, you know, when I, when I teach a class, I'm, I'm teaching an upper division class now in the age of Jackson. And I was surprised that no one had heard of any of these three women, but but at the time they were very well known. Um, Sarah Hale is the editor of Godey's Ladies Book, 
which is the is the magazine of the the 19th century for women and it is you know it is published um as with her as the editor for over 50 years um you know she is the author of as i said um she um writes northwood which is comes out when she the same year she's the editor of a previous magazine um but then she she becomes the editor and and within that she is a you know she's a voice that pretty much everyone listens to and has heard from even um the little house on the prairie books um you know when they're taking place in uh, the 1870s and early 1880s they refer to Godies as the you know kind of inspiration for how women's you know clothing should be and so you know this is out in you know South Dakota they're following this so it's clearly a you know influential and it, it even is more so in the 1830s and, and 40s um so she writes that but she also is the author of a cookbook so that's kind of how I originally stumbled across her as someone I wanted to include is that she wrote a cookbook. Uh, Lydia Maria Child is, um, you know, once again, someone where we may have heard the name, but can't really place it, what, you know, who she is. Um, but she wrote a, you know, she wrote a cookbook. She wrote Hobomoke, which is at least known in, in English, uh, you know, literature kind of fields, but, um, she, you know, also though wrote um, books on anti-slavery activism and wrote essays and you know very nonfiction uh, books on on equality uh, between the races. And she is, you know, constantly. She was the editor of a newspaper, uh, the um, American Anti-Slavery Standard, and so. She is incredibly well known at the time. Um, in the in 1860, she is the um, uh, Harriet Jacobs uh, book. Um, she is the you know kind of the editor and helps um, kind of influence how that you know very famous book is written. So she writes the introduction and she sees that it gets published. She writes a book on um, for the you know. Freedmen's Society after the Civil War for uh, Af- formerly enslaved African Americans to inspire them. You know, she writes a it's a collection of biographies of all of the famous African Americans that come before that that they may not know. So she's incredibly um, well known at the time. And then and then there's Catherine Beecher who doesn't write fiction. But she is, you know, writing, she writes her cookbook, she writes her domestic manual, she writes a lot of books on education, and she's sort of, um, she's sort of like Hale, where she also writes a lot of essays for journals and newspapers. So she, she's equally well known. And uh, the three, I mean, actually, probably the least known would be Child at the time, and and she was definitely famous, um, but 
uh, Hale and, and Beecher were very well known for the time. Right, and Beecher, she has her family currency as well during this yes. well during this time. She, you know, with famous father, famous siblings, she was definitely, you know, people knew who she was. So she is, um, she's the oldest of the Beecher children. You know, her father, Lyman Beecher, uh, was a very well-known minister back when we knew ministers. Um, her brother was also, um, Henry Ward Beecher, was a very famous minister that was involved in a sex scandal in the 70s. Yes, 70s. I remember that. Um, he's a little less mem- uh, remembered today, but... Um, that was his background, but you know her. What she's most famous for is being the sister to Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. But Catherine Beecher is the older sister, and she is well known before Harriet Beecher Stowe publishes her book, and she writes more than more than just uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. That's just the one we remember today. Um, but she's actually kind of responsible for first suggesting that her sister become a writer to earn money because her husband um, was a minister and a college professor and wasn't earning, um, you know, he was making money, but they had a large family. So she's like, you could earn money this way. And um, she like talked to her various publishers and, and got, um, Harriet, you know, like originally published and, you know, helped her promote her books. And then, you know, by the time Uncle Tom's Cabin came out, she sort of surpassed her sister. But, you know, for a long time, uh, Catherine Beecher was really working to promote Harriet. Right. And she's so successful. And, you know, she starts off with tying domesticity to moving outside of just this idea for the home. It has linkages to citizenship. What are women's place in society? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I think is interesting about Catherine Beecher. So she publishes um, Treatise on Domestic Economy. It comes out in um, 1841 or two. And, um, and that's that. After the Civil War, uh, she writes the American Women's Home with her sister, um, but it's basically the same book as uh, Treatise on Domestic Economy, but um, it comes out in, I think, 1868. But, you know, by then her sister is a national icon and well-known, so she gets, you know, stamped on the book um, because Catherine is always savvy on how to make money and how to earn your position. Uh, mm-hmm. But really, basically, it's the same book that was written before, just a little shorter, not quite as long of an introduction as as Treatise of Domestic Economy has. But yeah, it's the same thing. Now, would you say from Hale, Beecher, and Child, how are they similar and how are they different? I think, um, I think... Hale is probably the most traditional um, in her beliefs, although, as I said, she's been a widow for, you know, most of her life. Um, and she's, you know, independent and earns money and she's an editor. 
but you know, she does promote um, women's, you know, to live, you know, not her, but everyone else should be good housekeepers, you know, you know, follow, follow the rules that she sets up in Goaties. Um, Catherine Beecher is also um, probably very similar to Hale. She lives, she lives a very public life, which is not what true womanhood calls for. Uh, but she, but she, what we'll add to her is she promotes women's education. And so, and remember, she's doing education, which I think is, is kind of interesting. She promotes it not just because, you know, kids need to learn and she wants, she's wanting to educate women to go teach them in the West. Um, but she does it because she wants women to be able to have jobs and earn their own money. And so she sees this idea of, of women being trained to be educators actually is just a good position for women to have. Um, Lydia Maria Child is, is truly the radical of the, the three. And, um, and it, I think it's kind of interesting because she lives in some ways a very traditional domestic life. Um, she, she never can afford, um, household servants for more than a few weeks at a time. You know, so she hires people to come in and help her, but not, not workers on a permanent basis. Uh, she is an editor of a newspaper. She is very conscious of, you know, she not only writes, um, you know, the American frugal housewife, but, you know, in her early years of marriage, she is the editor of, uh, you know, a children's magazine, because that's where how she earns her money. Uh, she writes the mother's book, which is her sequel to American Frugal Housewife, to earn more money. So she's she and her husband are kind of living on the edge uh, financially. And so um, she is, you know, constantly worried about money and how she can earn more. But she's at the same time, very committed to politics. And so she becomes active in anti-slavery work. Um, she becomes, um, she's very much a promote, promoter of women's right to vote. And this is in the 1850s before, um, you know, most women are. Uh, and she's And she's doing these things in writing. Although it's kind of interesting, she writes a lot about racial equality and she's a little more personal when she writes. Um, she writes to her friends about women should have the right to vote. She becomes obsessed like almost every letter she writes in 1856, which is when um, Charles Free, it's when the Republican party begins. Charles C. Fremont is a Republican candidate. At this point, she is, utterly just cannot talk about anything but politics. And, you know, she's like irritated with the fact that, um, you know, women can't vote. So, you know, she writes, you know, she writes letters saying women should get to vote. She writes, you know, critical letters of the men that, that are voting, you know, kind of just saying they're, they don't deserve it. You know, 
over women. You know, they're, they're not, you know, active. Um, you know, why do they get to vote? And so she, she really becomes obsessed in the 1850s, but, um, but yeah, she's very much an activist and, and far more progressive than the other two. Although she, she does lead that kind of quiet life. Well, you know, it's interesting. You just mentioned she's, they're always living on the edge and it seems like she's the one who's almost bringing them back from the brink Mm -hmm. um, with her income. But she's also at this time, she's also very politically active during this time and she takes on different causes and she becomes involved. And as you alluded to, she was working with Harriet Jacobs and, you know, with her narrative, it was especially during this time, what we consider to be somewhat controversial um, during the 19th century, just because of what Jacobs was discussed in the way she discussed it. Yes. Well, yeah. What so needed she, to be in there. Yes. You know, she really, um, I mean, I think that's one of the things that people um, don't appreciate about child is she is also completely conscious of how things are going to be seen by the public. And so, you know, when Harriet Jacobs is, is writing, you know, she's, you know, talking about the sexual abuse of enslaved women and, you know, and what, what child is trying to get her to do is not to, you know, keep her mouth shut. You know, she's not saying that, but she's like, you need to present yourself as, in essence, a true woman. And so you need to meet these characteristics and then talk about how you were, you know, taken advantage of and things. And so she's really very aware of how how things will, will look to the public. She also, um, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, you know, he gets arrested, he's about to be executed. So she writes a series of letters to the governor of Virginia, but they're published in the newspaper, so they're not not private letters, where she asks that she could go and and talk to him as a mother and, you know, show him some kindness as he is, you know, in his final days. And, you know, she's really actually just a very active abolitionist and against what they're they're planning to do to him. But instead, she presents it from the ideas of, but what is the role of a woman? And so she is going to, you know, as a mother, here's what I would like to do, you know, but, but she's, but she's not a mother. She has no children in real life, you know, right. But, but that's how she presents herself. And she's always just incredibly strategic. And, and that's one of the things I personally appreciate how she writes. Right. She is, of the three, I would agree with you and say she is definitely the most progressive um, during this period. In the last chapter, you talk about two African-American women writers, Sarah Horton and Sarah Maps Douglas. Can you shed a little bit of light on their experience during this period? So they're both um, upper middle class um, African-American women in Philadelphia. Um, Sarah Douglas is a little, you know, less wealthy, but still, um, 
her father is um, a, a hairdresser and is is financially well off. Her mother has been a milliner, and yeah, you know, she isn't anymore, but you know, is well off. So they're they're financially fine. Um, Sarah Fortin is actually quite wealthy as a woman. But both of these women are kind of uh, coming of age in the 1830s, and I find them fascinating how how their lives pan out. And so Sarah uh, Fortin is um, the daughter of James Fortin, who is one of the wealthiest men um, in Pennsylvania. And, you know, that not like saying wealthiest men of color. He is an incredibly wealthy man of, you know, any race. And, uh, you know, she is definitely, you know, a lady of leisure. Um, but in 1830, in the 1830s, as she's a teenager, uh, William Lloyd Garrison's uh, newspaper, The Liberator, starts coming out. And her father is um, a big promoter of it. And, uh, you know, the the book or the the newspaper starts in, in January of 1831. And in like the second or third issue, um, a poem that is uh, printed called The Grave of a Slave. And, um, you know, he, James Fortin, her father, is writing to um, Garrison and says, hey, I just made the realization <laughs> my daughter wrote that poem. And and here, you know, she's, he's like, so, and she wants to publish more. So, you know, definitely be in touch. But, you know, it's like, I had no idea this was going on. And Garrison just like, you know, immediately attaches because he sees this as an opportunity to prove to a white readership that African-Americans can write just as well and be just as proper and just as well raised as as whites and and frankly Sarah Fortin was raised better than most um and so he starts publishing some things written by her and then other African American women and he would sign you know have them signed you know a colored lady you know a a lady of color and you know frankly at the time um most women didn't sign their names to what they wrote. And so the famous women that were published already, you know, writing books would, but, you know, just the average woman didn't sign, sign their name. They would, you know, so he would start, you know, adding their race to, to what they said. And so, you know, make the argument, you know, you know, this lady, not just a woman, but a lady, you know, you know, he would emphasize, you know, how well their lives were lived. So she starts publishing in, in The Liberator. She is, she publishes in a couple of other newspapers as well. But that Liberator is, you know, it's the anti-slavery newspaper at the time. And and that's where she, she most, mostly focuses um, her work. She's also, you know, her her parents are very active anti-slavery activists. And so they have, at the time, people start coming to Philadelphia to give lectures on abolition. And they all come and stay with the Fortins and their, their large house. And 
or will come visit. And she's just, you know, writes about how exciting it is to meet, you know, the the people and and what they do. And she talks about interacting with with whites and how um how the anti-slavery societies and how exciting it is. And there's so much enthusiasm. And then after like a year, she starts kind of writing, yeah, but they're still bigoted. Yeah. Why don't they give me the same, you know, chance to speak or why don't they recognize, um, you know, my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a woman, you know, the same as them, you know, I'm not a black woman, you know, that's not how I should be evaluated. And so she starts writing some rather angry poems and angry um, essays, but to kind of call out, you know, the abolitionists, because at this time, white abolitionists were, were still sort of, uh, we want we don't think they should be enslaved, but, and they, you know, wouldn't carry through or, you know, they wouldn't. Right. And so she's like calling them out for it. So she's right. publishing and, and writing and, and then she gets married in 1838 and, uh, and it all comes to an end and she quits she no longer publishes anything. She's pretty much, um, you know, she's been part of the uh, Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. She's even served as one of the secretaries. And that's like a huge uh, interracial, you know, so black and white women are serving together. One of the few uh, early anti-slavery societies that's, that's like that. You know, she resigns from that. She you know, is out of the female literary society. Um, and she, you know, goes off with her husband and moves to Bucks County. And basically she's a farmer's wife. Um, she marries the, um, brother of Robert, uh, Purvis, who is also much like the Fortins, incredibly wealthy. Um, he has a white father, um, and a, um, an African-American woman there. He's born in South Carolina. His father moves to, um, Philadelphia with his three sons, um, to, you know, find them a better life. So he is, you know, um, he's not one of the people that, you know, has sex with a slave and, and forgets his children. I mean, he is very interested and involved in, you know, their mother stays with him, you know, throughout her life. And he wants to raise his sons, you know, in a free society. Um, so anyway, he's in, uh, Robert is in Philadelphia. She marries Joseph, his younger brother. Um, but Joseph doesn't really want to be an anti-slavery activist. He wants to, you know, own a farm. So, I mean, he can hire, he doesn't work the farm, um, but they, they move out and uh, he basically is an alcoholic and dies in the 1850s as a, still a relatively young man and uh, loses his fortune, which is worth in, in our dollars today, millions, like 
like like 80 million, right? And so he runs through all of that money um, and they, yeah, and eventually he, she's just a widow with her children and living, you know, in, in outside of Philadelphia. And that is, that is what her life is like. And, uh, I'm wondering what, what happens to her. You know, there are a few letters of hers that, that are saved, but, but not many, um, which is interesting because her family were very active and kind of left a paper trail, but nothing from Sarah. Um, you know, there are a few letters found. She wrote to Theodore Weld, who was married to Angelina Grimke. Uh, and in this letter, I just find an explanation of she had borrowed money from him and she can't afford to pay him back. And that's really what the, that's what the letter is. And that's one of the few remaining letters. And that's written, um, in the 1860s. And I mean, there's nothing that really exists from her that's been found from, from her marriage to that time. So I find her, her fascinating. Um, on the other hand, Sarah Maps Douglas is, um, she's kind of secretary of all organizations. So she is of the female literary society. She is of the Pennsylvania or Philadelphia female anti-slavery society. She is um, of lots of different groups. And so when she is writing as a corresponding secretary, she signs her name. And so she is, um, she is well known. She's also a teacher at the time and teaches. uh, She opens a private school uh, for African-American girls. It's eventually taken over in the 1850s by, um, I see the Institute of Colored Youth, but she runs the the women's institution there. So um, she's an educator throughout her life. Um, she publishes uh, largely in the Liberator, but she's not she's not really she writes a couple of poems and essay, but mostly she's writing letters to the editor and uh, making more explicit arguments against slavery and for women's education. And she is, you know, when I've gone through um, the Philadelphia press at the time, um, you know, her school is well known and people come from around the country to uh, visit her school and see what she's teaching and she is highly respected um, by African Americans, but by you know a at least a, a somewhat you know larger white audience as well. And you know she is her name appears in the paper throughout her life, and she stays you know well known. She is you know corresponds with the Grimke sisters. Uh, she is writing, you know, she, she also writes a lot of personal letters and, and while they're not in her name and like, you know, a Philadelphia archive, you can find them in other, other people's, um, papers, uh, particularly the white, uh, women that she wrote to, um, their papers all seem to have been saved. Right. And she professionally, she is doing, 
wonderful things. You know, her life is moving on a trajectory. She's becoming more well-known. But at the same time, she's also having personal changes as well that are of a mixed nature in many respects um, that, that are confusing as you look at her life, because professionally she is thriving, but personally, if you just think about everything that's happening to her, you wonder how much she's struggling with all of this. Yes. In the 1850s, um, she is, um, um, she also goes to medical school to get trained, to give lectures for, um, to women, both black and white women will come and hear her lectures. Um, but she all, you know, she's still publishing. They have a, a, um, reading group for men and women that's formed in her honor, you know, in, in the late 1850s. And so, I mean, she's really well known, but then she also in her, in her late forties decides to get married in, um, in the 1850s. And that is something I've really struggled to understand what's going on. And so, um, with Sarah Fortin, um, we do know that she was pregnant when she got married. Um, so that explains at least somewhat why she got married at the time that she did. But, you know, Sarah Douglas gets married at 47. I mean, why is she, she's lived this long, you know, as a single woman, why does she choose to to marry and you know I know and she's so successful she's so successful her career is thriving at this point she has she's well known she has her school she's training in the medical profession yet at 47 she's also getting married and not just married married she's married and becoming a stepmother to nine children during this time Yes. And it makes no sense. Like when I very first started doing the research, you know, the romantic in me thought, oh, maybe he was someone that she was in love with when she was young. And then he, you know, he is free and then they, the two of them get married. And it's like, no, no, not that. There's so many questions that surround their relationship, their life, her life, the yes. lives of their children, uh, well, his children, her stepchildren. But there's this level of, as we say, professionally, she is thriving. Her career is going places. She's well known. Mm-hmm. Yet... And she's happy in that respect, but in terms of her personal life, there's this aura of mystery that surrounds it. And that's one of the things I wish I could, you know, sit down and eavesdrop on some conversations she must have had with her, her female friends at the time, or I wish she would be more revealing when she writes her letters, but, but yeah, so she, she decides, um, to marry William Douglas. And we have a couple of letters that talk about it. And so uh, she writes to, um, and I don't know why, but her name escapes me, but there's, uh, there are two sets of letters that, that have been preserved um, that go on for 
30, 40 years. One set, Sarah Grimke, and the other to um, a less well-known woman. And as I said, I, I can't think of her name right now. But anyway, um, she writes to both of them before she marries. And, you know, one, she just sort of says, I'm getting married. Um, and then she, you know, makes no other comment. And this is a woman she's been writing to for, you know, since the 1830s. It's like 20 years have gone by and you just say, and I'm getting married. Not really anything else. She's a little more personal in her letter to Sarah Grimke. And in it, she, you know, we don't have the letters both directions. So, you know, there's some letters missing from the correspondence, but, but basically we get that she doesn't like, um, she doesn't, I don't know why she marries him. Right. So she's writing Sarah Grimke and she, you know, doesn't appreciate that, uh, William Douglas is joking about her age and, you know, Sarah Grimke's like, oh, come on, you know, grow up. It's not a big deal. You are, you know, you are in your late forties, you know, but there, so there's some reference to that. She makes a reference that, um, she, you know, doesn't want to have sex with him. And, you know, that's something I, I, you know, question, is it because she's not attracted to him? Is it because, you know, she's a virgin at 47 and, and doesn't want to be engaged in sex anymore. You know, she not too old to have kids or, you know, I, you have no idea why, but once again, Sarah Grimke says, I think you should. And that's what a marriage is about. You know, both, you know, there's intimacy as well as, you know, a friendship of some, some sort. And so we know those things, but then when you look at the letters, there is, she never follows up, so we have no idea how the marriage takes place or what happens. Um, she makes virtually no reference in her letters to um, Douglas's William Douglas's children. There are nine of them, you know. It's a full house. She's joined in, and she makes you know. There's just like two references, and they are in passing. But in the volumes of letters she writes this time, that's it. Uh, I mean, she might have written to someone else and they don't, those letters aren't saved, but very little written about her children. And then when we look at it, we can see, you know, the newspaper coverage says she's still teaching and teaching full time. And she is still giving her medical lectures and she's traveling to New York State. Um, you know, which is at least the one place we know that she goes to outside of Philadelphia. But we assume that she's traveling around the country and giving these lectures. And so she's still living her, living her best life as a, you know, professional, but then she's married. And it's like, what is, what is her husband's expectations? What is, you know, what is going on? We do know that, um, William Douglas is her cousin. Her her mothers are sisters, which I know doesn't explain the last name being the same there. But that's kind of more of a, a coincidence. But there, her t- her mother and uh, her sister, the Bustles, are, are sisters. And 
that's uh, William Douglas's mother. So I assume perhaps she was kind of pressured into marriage. You know, her, his wife dies, you know, within a couple of years. She, you know, is, she remarries him. You know, is that because it was her, her duty as a single woman to help him care for his kids? But if that's the truth, she certainly didn't. She worked just as much and even a little more so than she did before, you know, her, um, before she got married. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, we can't figure out why, why did she marry? And then when you look at the census, so yeah, the census comes out every 10 years. So 1850, he's married to his, um, his first wife and, you know, most of the kids are born. Um, I think one isn't yet in 1860. That is the one census, um, when they are married, Sarah and and William. And so she's living with him and his children. And then the 1870 census, she's living with her brothers. Um, and so I started tracking the children and they all seem to be, they screw up on the names. So they're not in the spellings and all of that, but I'm, I'm pretty certain I've tracked down, um, his oldest daughter who then owns a home and has all of the siblings living with her. And so, you know, not only is she married and then she becomes widowed, but she just seems to separate completely from the kids. And it's like, okay, I guess. But then we have to remember that they're also the same family, right? They're, they're all cousins. So I have no idea how this works, but after her husband dies, I looked at some of his obituaries and I think she's, she's mentioned in one. And then in her obituaries, I think several of them mention him, but they focus on her career and her life. In her last chapter of the book, she discusses two very important women, Sarah Fortin, and she also discusses Sarah Maps Douglas. Now, Professor Stanfield, can you tell us how these African-American women writers serve as exemplars for womanhood and providing a means for creating civic space for themselves and for black men during the 19th century as African-American women writers? I think that um, it's sort of interesting because we have the two Sarahs um, are, are most famous when they're not married, but I think for African-Americans, they became this idea of um, a more, a, a, a more precise or, or, or better life. You know, just like Martha Stewart today is the essence of womanhood. I think that um, Douglas and Fortin, as well as other African-American writers at the time, you know, were, became sort of exemplars of we, we are just behaving and, and writing as our white counterparts do. And so, um, Sarah Fortin, you know, becomes, we, we start seeing other women submitting poetry to the liberator in her footsteps because they also want to be seen 
as Sarah Fortin is. And you start seeing women other than Sarah Douglas sending letters to the editor of of the Liberator, but also other anti-slavery newspapers where they talk about, um, you know, the need to end slavery or whatever. And it's once again, they start following in, in the footsteps of, you know, Sarah Douglas is writing, you know, essays. They begin writing letters to the editor and things as well. And, um, you know, I, I think that you start seeing in the, in the 1830s, more and more women of, of both races suddenly seeing, I can write, I can, I can discuss my opinions matter. And, and William Lloyd Garrison is largely responsible for it. And so things like, uh, as these different women's organizations are formed, uh, anti-slavery groups, they start submitting, and this isn't at, um, Garrison's suggestion early on, but they start submitting copies of the constitution of their organization. And then they start sending things about how they're going to raise money. So it's not just an ad for my anti-slavery fair, but then it's like, Hey, we made this much money and this is what we're going to spend it on. And so Garrison's newspaper, and then to a lesser extent, other newspapers became an important access point for for black and white women to spread the word. And, you know, I think largely anti-slavery activism really takes off because of, of this idea of print culture. And, you know, not only are we going to form a, a women's group in Salem, Massachusetts, but they're going to read about it in Philadelphia and in Boston and in New York and in Rochester. And that's, how it also really, really takes off. Right. And they're also, not only are they doing like the anti-slavery societies, they're also doing these self-help organizations, these literary societies. um, Yes. Where we're learning. Right. And so we have some records of the Female Literary Association, which is the one that is founded by... um, you know, Sarah Douglas and the Fortins and, uh, but there also, we know of at least two other groups in Philadelphia that exist, you know, around the same time. Um, and so, you know, we, we don't have records of them or any, you know, excerpts, but, but we do know that there were, you know, there are references to these other two groups. And I would assume that these you know, literary societies existed throughout the U.S. It's just we haven't we haven't found the records yet, or they weren't saved. But but women women tended to not just be anti-slavery activists, but they used it as a chance to educate themselves and to you know kind of make up for the the lack of education in the earlier generations. Uh, but then for younger women to become prepared to write essays and to give speeches for politics at the time. So it really made a big, big difference. And, um, and yeah, these women's uh, literary groups 
really took off in the 1830s. Well, you know, you mentioned about their activism beginning, and you mentioned, with that respect, you've got Sarah Fortin, and she began as a teenager, her writings. Um, She has a very interesting life. She comes from a very well-known family during this time. Can you say a little bit about her? Sure. Um, Sarah was a, um, as I said, she's the youngest daughter of James Fortin, an incredibly wealthy uh, African-American sail maker. And, uh, you know, she has, um, she, her older sisters, um, Harriet marries Robert Purvis, and she's sort of a a low-key activist. You know, Robert Purvis is the one that's well-known um, of the couple, but she's definitely involved in um, the Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. She's involved in anti-slavery affairs. Um, she's sort of a, she's a very active member, although not leader. And then um, the next sister, uh, Marguerite, uh, is is a school teacher and very active. She. And when I say school teacher, you know, it's not like what we think of today. I mean, she she runs her own school that was founded. Um, well, the second one was founded in the 1850s. So she's, you know, definitely very active and involved. But Sarah is the one that is um, the creative writer. She's she's writing poetry. She's writing essays. She's very enthusiastic as a teenager, um, writing about the people that come visit her and writing about the excitement of the anti-slavery talks and, you know, conferences. And then also after, after a year or so goes by, she becomes, um, more paranoid, um, not paranoid, um, because it's definitely justified, um, becomes more more willing to write about um, discrimination that she faces. So when she starts out, she's you know pretty much um, part of the the African American society in Philadelphia. As she joins in with white activists and anti slavery work, she's slower to realize, but she starts seeing oh they were they're biased against me. They're bigoted against me. They're, they, they'll be friendly, but then they don't want to sit next to me or, you know, walk with me. And, um, so she begins calling out the, um, the, the white liberal anti-slavery activists and, and kind of saying, who, you know, who are you really? So her poetry kind of shifts from, you know, about the beautiful friendship that exists to, are we friends? You know, how, how do you, how you rate those things? And so she's an incredibly active writer. Um, I think we've tracked down about 14 or 15 uh, poems. And then there are a bunch because women at the time didn't sign their own names. Um, she wrote under pseudonyms, um, that we don't, you know, she may have written a lot more. And then she wrote a couple of essays. Um, but then when she gets married in 1838, yeah, 
she just disappears from society. And, you know, you would think, oh, is it just because she's married? But but most married women are still anti-slavery activists that start out. Um, she she seems to, she moves and, and is, we don't hear anything from her for quite some time. Right. She disappears. She's just her activism, which was a considerable part of her life. But once she makes that shift after marriage, it's gone. She's just, she almost disappears. Right. And I mean, we found, um, so her um, niece, Charlotte Fortin, who um, is um, writes her famous diaries, you know, there's a brief reference to the chaos of um, Sarah's home and the mess of the home. Uh, she has a letter she writes in the 1860s to Theodore Weld um, saying that, you know, she borrowed money and she can't pay him back. But but literally, there is very little reference to her again. I mean, I looked at anti-slavery fairs where everyone that participates is assigned in the ad. Her name's not there. Her sister Harriet, who later on moves to Bucks County as well, but lives like 20 miles away, she's still listed and is still active. But with Sarah, there's just nothing. Wow. It's it's so interesting. She's just, you know, from someone being so active to just completely disappear. But as you said, Charlotte did mention the chaos of her home life during this mm-hmm. time. And I was kind of disappointed because when I when I got a hold of the the diaries, I assumed that she, I mean, she would have written a lot more about her her aunt. And it's like she just doesn't. She doesn't. I mean, clearly. Sarah is not exiled from her family. So there's some communication, um, but not, not much. No, no, actually, um, Charlotte Fortin, she spends a lot of time with the um, Raymond family. She talks Mm -hmm. about the interactions with them, more references than to her aunt, Sarah. Yes. No, I mean, and she doesn't go off to, um, you know, to Massachusetts to school, but yeah, she just doesn't have a lot of, of, of mentions at, at all. I mean, she, she doesn't really talk about Harriet Fortin, um, Purvis much either. She's, she's a little more described, but, but I think you're right. She, she writes about the, the Riemanns so so much more. Right. And it's, you know, you think about it, it's her diary that she's keeping during this time for the most part. So uh, these, I guess, were the things that she felt were pivotal and important to include. But as with Charlotte, she disappears from the historical record. But Sarah Babs Douglas, she's the exact opposite. She remains there. Um, during the 19th century. If anything, her career takes off and she is center stage. Yes. So, you know, she also is writing at the same time as Sarah Fortin. Um, She writes, I think, a poem or two that's published. And um, 
in kind of an, an essay-ish sort of fiction, sort of an essay. But most of what she writes are letters to the editor um, or essays on, you know, why people need to take action. Um, but she's writing about the same time. She's also, uh, she's a school teacher. Uh, she goes off to New York to teach for, um, I believe, two years, but comes back and uh, starts her own private school um, that that teaches young women and is supported by the Pennsylvania or the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. So PFAS does give them money or give her school money, but, you know, she's, she starts her own school and, you know, she's very well known for teaching. She's very well known uh, for being secretary of the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society but also various other organizations, you know, like the Female Literary Association. She is um, very active, you know, throughout. She's publishing in in The Liberator. And then in the 1850s, she starts going to medical school. And she doesn't ever plan to be a doctor, but she wants to be able to give you know, lectures to women, both white and black women attend these lectures of talking about, you know, female health and safety and how to, how to better care for yourself, you know, presumably because at the time women would be uncomfortable having these discussions with male doctors. And so she's, you know, answering questions and giving lectures and all of that happens in the 1850s. She also gets married. Right. And the marriage becomes not the center point of her life in most respects, as you think it would. It's almost a footnote in her life. Yes. So she writes, she has two sets of correspondence that, um, we've seen a bunch of her letters from, and she writes to both of these women for a long time, you know, starts writing in the 1830s. Um, and so to each of these, uh, one Sarah Grimke and the other is not a, a particularly well-known woman. Um, but anyway, you know, she writes about her marriage and to one, you know, she just writes and I'm getting married and then just goes on to, to talk about other things. You know, here's a woman that's in her forties and and she's suddenly going to get married. And that's how she tells her, you know, one of her two best friends is like, and I'm getting married, you know? And she like says, and you know, uh, in a couple of months I'll be married. And then she goes back to whatever she's writing about. And she writes a little more personally to Sarah um, and Grimke um, and in it, she, she starts questioning things like, well, you know, he's, she doesn't appreciate his humor. She doesn't, you know, appreciate his, you know, he's overly, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think she's mad that he's not respectful enough of her, you know, so he's kind of, you know, well, you would think if they're getting married, he would be more you know, a buddy, a friend, you know, but 
she doesn't seem to see him, you know, treating her that way. She's very concerned about having sex with him and doesn't want to. And, you know, these are the things that she discusses with um, Sarah Grimke, but, but she's really only doing this at least as far as I can tell, because not all the letters are saved. It's really just discussed in one letter. And then we have Grimke's response, but, um, and then nothing else really. They never speak of it again. No. And it's like, really? I mean, even if I were Sarah Grimke, I'd be like, Hey girl, what'd you do? You know, what did you, you know, think? <laughs> it, you know. But there's nothing she doesn't, you know, or did she, you know, the question becomes, did she feel that comfortable talking about it with her since you know Sarah Grimke is single herself at this time or but mm-hmm. who would she talk to who would be someone that she would be able to have these conversations with and her mother's passed away so I I can't figure it out I mean I I would assume maybe someone locally but you know Sarah is such a a notable famous figure is is she does she have conversations with just anyone? Right. Or is this something she's talking about at one of her medical classes? Do they, does this come up or, you know, is it something she's looking at also from a scientific point of view, you know, because especially for a woman during this period to be interested in science, uh, that's definitely outside of the bonds of what 19th century women should be doing. So she's pushing the envelope in many respects, but her career is thriving. I mean, she is, she definitely has a reputation. She's well known now. Yet, personally, she seems to be struggling in some ways. Or not struggling, but there's a detachment that she has from that right. whole life. I mean, you know, when, when I look at her letters, she literally mentions her children once or twice, you know, in the six years that she's married, that's it. And she writes a lot of letters. Okay. And, and we, and we don't even have all of them. So maybe she writes to other people, but, but the children are hardly mentioned. She barely mentions her husband, but does a few more times. But I mean, you can go through dozens of her letters and, there's no reference to her husband. Um, I do know, you know, when you look at the 1860 census that she's living with her husband and her stepchildren, but when you look at the 1870 census, she is um, back living with her, her brothers. And um, she, and the oldest of the, of her husband's children seems to have started a home and have all of the all of the siblings living with her. So I have no idea how how does she just walk away? How does she how does she separate herself? I mean, was she miserable? Were the children miserable with her? Was she just like my duty's over? Time to get back to work? I mean, what I, I don't know. And that's one of the things that I don't know if we'll ever find out. I know, but you can't help but be curious because you see 
how much for a person who loves educating, who obviously mm -hmm. enjoys her work as a teacher and being around children, yet in her personal life, she has just completely detached herself from that role in many respects. Yeah, because you would think even, I mean, these letters are conversation, you know, these aren't like, she's not writing, you know, political letters or, you know, I mean, obviously politics are an important part of her life, but she's writing about her her everyday life just without a mention of, of a husband and, and children. So I really can't, it, it doesn't make sense. And once her, you know, her husband dies, you know, I would say she goes back to teaching, but no, she continues teaching. It's just, her marriage doesn't change her life in any way and her husband's death doesn't change it in any way. She's still teaching, still giving lectures, still, you know, an officer in all of these various organizations and her life just continues on. Right. As is, there's really no change whatsoever. Whereas if you look at Sarah Fortune, her life she just stops. <laughs> right. You know, she goes and she's telling um, Theodore, well, she can't afford to pay back money that she borrowed from him, which is very interesting. So you kind of have to question the family dynamics there when her sister is very wealthy. Um, she was going yeah. to someone outside of the family for money. I mean, I do find that interesting. And Theodore Weld was not um, an incredibly wealthy man. I mean, he's fine. He, he's self-sufficient. You know, but he's not like an abolitionist like Garrett Smith or so. I mean, he's he's not incredibly wealthy. So why would she have turned to him for money instead of her own family? Weld in particular, right? You know, because... He doesn't live in Philadelphia, so it's not even like she has a a long-term, you know, relationship with him, um, you know, friendship with him. I mean, he's in, you know, lives in New Jersey, then moves to New York and Massachusetts. So, you know, he's never lived near her. So I don't, I don't really, I don't, I don't understand why. And that's something I would love to find out. I do know, um, you know, after her husband dies in the 1850s, she continues to raise her kids. They continue, you know, their lives just spiral into debt and out of control. Sorry about that. Um, so, it, you know, her life starts spiraling out of control, but she stays with her kids. You know, she stays married. And then once they all... Um, either one passes away shortly after the Civil War, uh, her children get married and all. Then she does move back home with her sister, uh, Marguerite, and um, her mother while she's still alive in the, seem like the, the mid-1870s. And so she wasn't like ostracized by her. I mean, she was definitely had at least some relationship to her family that they took her back in, but why, why, why was she so poor? Why, why didn't anyone help her? You know, particularly after her husband dies. Right. That I, I don't know. And why at that point professionally, did she not start writing again? 
I mean, you know? yeah, I, I assume, you know, part of it, cause they, you know, also when you look at the census, they have quite a few people that uh, live on the farm with them and help with the farming. And at the end, it's just her family and her, you know, so her and her children, but even then it seems like she would have tried to write and, and make some money that way. And, and to express herself that way. And, and she doesn't. Wow. I'm one, you know, it's one of those things where you wonder, is there, you know, documents out there that are hers that are in a more rural setting, um, that's in someone's attic right now, um, or at the bottom of something that she actually did write and she went back, but it was more of a private nature versus public consumption. I would love to find it, but yeah. Same here. It's, it's like, I have no idea, but I I have. I kind of wondered. It's like, did she even continue writing when she was married? You know, I mean, how do you write so much and then just stop, right? I mean, did she, you know, jot down just like a couple of, you know, lines of poetry? And, you know, I mean, how, how did it all just stop. I know. And she just, it is just her life just segued into marriage and children. And unfortunately for her, alcoholism for her husband and debt. And yet for Douglas, it's the exact opposite. She continued to do well in her career. If anything, she picked up and she thrived and she entered new arenas all while married. Um, so it's very, it's very contrasting experiences um, for women during the 19th century. Now, Professor Stanfield, what would you want readers to take away from the book? I think in a broad sense, I hope they, they recognize that citizenship can mean a lot of different things, that it's not just limited to the right to vote. And so... Hopefully they realized that not, you know, women weren't passive. They just imagined and enacted citizenship in different ways than we, we think of today. And so I would want them to, to kind of keep that in mind. Um, but then part of me also wants them to just remember Sarah Fortin, remember Lydia Maria Child. And, you know, and, and all of the women, but those in particular, and, and just think about the, the lives they lived and, and maybe they could be curious as well. And, you know, the more people that wonder about Sarah Fortin, maybe someone will, will write, write the, write the real biography of her that, that reveals, reveals it all. True. That's what we all wish for. Thank you. For joining me today, Professor Stanfield, readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Rewriting Citizenship to learn more about women's varied roles in society and also their ideas about citizenship during the 19th century. This is a book that can be read by academics and non-academics alike. So please go out and pick out a copy of Rewriting Citizenship. Again, Professor Stanfield, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It was great talking to you.